and welcome to episode 69 of the See Here podcast. If I were Benny Hill, I'd be going, wah, wah, but I'm not, so I won't. I'm here in Melbourne, and over in Bath is Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good evening. Once again, <laughs> we're without our beloved colleague in Brantford, Mr. Tim Merrill. He's once again on leave, but we hope to have him back next month for episode 70. More on that later. But joining us for uh, this very special episode of See Here is Ms. Rachel Lee Carter, also in Bath. Hello. We're going to be talking about a film that you have picked, and you have a connection to this film, which we'll be going into. The film is called Anna, made in 1967, directed by a fellow called Pierre Koralnik. So we'll be quizzing you about all sorts of things in relation to this film. Before we get into talking about the film, I believe that you have a project in relation to Jane Birkin, and there's a connection between her and this film. So would you like to tell us a little bit about what this project is? I was, first of all, I was a fan of, of Serge Gainsbourg, and then because of that, I got into Jane as well. And I've been a big fan of her since the late 80s, I think. Over the years, I've done all sorts of projects to do with Jane things. I used to have a band called Baby Birkin, where we did cover versions of Jane Birkin songs in a sort of lo-fi garage punk sort of way. I wrote to a TV show, Graham Norton TV show on Channel 4, and asked him to invite Jane on the show, and he did, and oh. um, that really really good I've always sort of followed her around so I've been to see her in plays in the UK and whenever she was playing concerts and things I used to go to those for about maybe five years maybe longer I've been working on writing about her and I was going to do a biography but I've decided to do it as a kind of zine thing now but quite a nice one with nice pictures and things because I've got a really big memorabilia collection so currently writing about her work mainly film work at the moment but I will be writing about her music as well I've been writing about it for years now so I'm just kind of picking out bits to edit together into little issues of zines and hopefully should have something out soonish maybe this year Wow, that's fantastic. Is this going to be like a physical media type of zine or is this going to be an online zine? Printed one. I'm hoping like one of those fold-out posters that you used to get, you know, where you get a, a music-related magazine and it was folded out and inside would be a big poster. But I'm kind of not thinking of having a big poster of Jane or anything, but using all those surfaces to, to have writing on and, and photographs of film stills or press packs, things like that, because so, I've got all sorts of stuff from her films and everything. So I'm just going to use the kind of promotional stuff and maybe pay for the odd photograph to use for it. So pay a photo agency to use a really nice image, but, but most of it will just come from my own collection. There's certainly a big market in France and other countries, actually. But I think the thing is that there is a book about her that's been published in English, but it was awful. Was that, I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> it was, um, we can edit that. It, it, it's not that it's awful. It's supposed to be academic, but it had really no content whatsoever. It was a book about her relationship with Serge and Jetem and things like that, but it was all just kind of academic fluff, in my opinion, and I was waiting for something to happen, some real research or information, but there wasn't any. So I hope that people will be interested just because it's things that she's not so well-known in England or America. I guess as she is in France and places like Germany or Italy or Spain and she's quite well known in Japan but I hope that because of the information I've got because I've done a 
part of research. There's things that people won't know about because there's stuff that she did in England that people either forgotten about or didn't know about in the first place. So. I can't remember, was she the knack in how to get it? Yes, yes, she was. She was Tolan's girlfriend. Uh, so she's the one that he puts a medallion around her neck and she gets on the back of the motorbike with him and she blows into his gloves before she puts them on his hands. One of Tolan's girlfriends in that, along with Charlotte Rampling. She was one of the other girlfriends in it as well. Yeah, so that was one of her early roles. Interestingly, you know, John Barry did the soundtrack to that. I did not she... remember that, no. Yeah, she married him. And the thing was, they didn't know each other when he was doing the soundtrack to that and when she was in the film. But she went to the premiere with him and he didn't even know she was in it. So <laughs> it, was, it was quite bizarre. She did have a small role. I think, as she put it, if you drop your ice cream, you would have missed it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that was one of her early roles. Have you seen any of the other English stuff that she did? I have not, no. You know, Blow Up. On my list of shame. Oh, really? Yeah, it really is, yeah. unfortunately. Um, yeah. It's interesting yeah. because when I put a post in the Facebook page that we were going to be discussing the film Anna for this program, one of the members of the group watched the trailer and said it gave him a vibe of Blow Up. Funny that, because I was thinking something along those lines myself a little bit not not quite but there, there are there are similarities have you had any contact with jane no but when i was writing the book it was kind of unfortunate timing really a few years back one of her daughters died she fell out of a window and she died i'd already been working on my book for about a year then and i thought oh god people might think it doing it to shock reasons or to get sales because of some kind of awful disaster so i approached her through her brother i don't know if you know andrew birkin anyway so i approached Andrew to speak to Jane because I didn't want to upset her and he said yeah you know we're sure that you're doing it for the right reasons and everything and Jane will look at what you've written at some point but at that point she was working on her diaries so she'd been keeping diaries since she was a teenager and she was getting something published and so she was busy working on that at some point sort of editing deciding what to include and what not you know when you get the vibe that although somebody said because she does know who I am because me being her first English fan I think and I'm of baby Birkin as well so she doesn't know who I am I've met her quite a few times I just kind of got the feeling that although she's not what you call a private person in that she just kind of says everything it's all been said in interviews she's quite an open person she considers herself to be a private person doesn't sort of particularly like biographies it's only been in recent times that I thought perhaps it'd be better if I did it differently and she just sees that it's something for fans and not a book and, and not I guess people might buy something about a particular film because they're interested in it but they wouldn't necessarily buy a book just about Jane Birkin unless they're particularly Jane Birkin fans so it might be easier this way and it'd probably be easier for me so I've decided to do it this way and I will send her copies when I've printed them so yeah she did say that she would read it over and, and let me know if there's anything that was factually incorrect but that's kind of funny because um She's got terrible memory herself and um, <laughs> constantly, constantly says things that happened in the wrong year and stuff like that, like terribly wrong, you know, where you just think that that's not right. I don't think particularly asking her to check whether I've got something wrong in terms of when things happened is probably not a good idea. Just coming back briefly to mm. the biography that you said that already exists, mm. that was very dry and academic in English. Were there any biographies yeah. written in French? Oh, yeah, yeah. There was one written by a uh, 
teenage boy back in the 70s, about 78, something mm. like that. And he was a fan. She let him have access to her and search. And it wasn't a biography. It was about well, it was about her films and music. And they're all very kind of controlled, if you, if you know what I mean. He did a great job. It's a really nice book about her films up to that point and some of her music as well. And then subsequently, there were a couple by a French journalist, a writer. They were very good. One mainly focused on the films and the other mainly focused on the music but they were done in collaboration with her again so she was controlling what was in them and then there have been some sort of unofficial things come out they were pretty rubbish because they clearly just went straight to the original three books the one by the young french guy the, the teenager and then the two by the journalist and you can tell because one of them in particular it goes up to a point in 1980s or 1990s wherever the book finishes and then his book stops having any detail whatsoever after that point because he clearly hasn't done any other research 20 years of her career or something have about 15 pages right at the end <laughs> at a point when she actually made her own directorial debuts and things like that that and it's like oh so you've just totally written all of that off in 15 pages she made a film and then move on um, it, it really wasn't researched i'm a real bad critic when it comes to stuff like this because i know my stuff it would appear so of, yeah <laughs> well i did that thing where you kind of say i'm gonna really make a go of this and do it and i start just working three days a week which i couldn't afford to do really and became incredibly poor and at a certain point i had to decide that i couldn't do that anymore but i used to do that and i'd go to london go to the bfi film library and also go to the film censors in London as well, the BBFC, and uh, look at their records for her films were censored and stuff and what people had to say about them. And I really dug deep and I got a lot of information and a lot of sort of exclusive sort of stuff as well. I couldn't not use it after spending so much time on it. So I think the zine way is the best way to go. Do you think you'll ever go back to the book idea, Rach? I don't See what happens. No, I, I think you know, Bernie, that I'd written most of it anyway. I think yeah. you've been working on it pretty much as long as I've known you, which has got to be a good sort yeah. of seven or eight years at this point. So, I, yeah, I'd written most of it. I don't know. I think the thing is, if people liked it, it could be put, pulled back together into a book format. Because obviously yeah. I'm having to now edit it so that the things about a particular film are standalone. So that it's mm -hmm. not assuming that you know something else from, that's happened before. So it has its different problems. But in a way, it's quite interesting because you can just focus on... On something and, and do more yeah. put more detail into it I'm interested in the detail and maybe not everybody is it would seem that the advantage of doing a zine like you're doing is for exactly that reason if you come up with new information 12 months after mm. you focus on a particular aspect you can always do a follow-up article so yeah it's an exactly. ongoing thing yeah there is that very exciting stuff so whenever it is that you publish the first issue we'll put a link to where people can get it on the facebook oh. website hopefully that will get a rush of hundreds of people Hundreds of Jane fans. Indeed, that's what we want. At this stage, what we'll do is we'll go to a quick break. And I don't know if I made mention at the start of this that the link between Jane Birkin and this film is Serge Gainsbourg. We'll talk about his involvement with Anna, what the film is actually all about. We'll have ourselves a fine old time. You're listening to See Here, episode 69. <laughs> Je 
I'm David and I'm the creator of the Sound and the Fury podcast, a series of short programs on the music that has shaped me as I grew up in a rural and cultural backwater in Australia. In series two, which will be released over the last few weeks of 2019, I join a rock band. Well, several, in fact. It's a celebration of playing an instrument and the thrills and frustrations of making a joyous racket with your mates. what happens to those dreams of stardom when the real world comes knocking you can check out the show on mixcloud at mixcloud.com forward slash the sound and the fury podcast you can follow me on instagram at the sound and the fury podcast and follow me on twitter at sound underscore fury underscore pod from break Morris over here Bernie over there Rachel considerably closer to him over there than over to here we're about to start talking about the film Anna from 1967 directed by one Pierre Koralnik written by Serge Gainsbourg and I'm not sure if I'm going to get the pronunciation correct Jean-Louis Dabadi and starring Anna Karina, Jean-Claude Brialy, Serge Gainsbourg, and a cameo from a woman very close to my heart, Marion Faithful. IMDb describes it thus. Released in 1967, this was the first colour film made for French TV. The story is about a man obsessively looking for a woman he saw in a photograph. More or less close to the truth. So... Before we sort of get into detail about the film, I have to ask you the question, Rachel, and I hope that you say yes, it is, because if you say no, it's not, there go half my notes. But does this film technically fit into even the tail end of the French New Wave? Does this count as French New Wave? I wouldn't put it in with New Wave myself. I kind of saw it as a pop art sort of thing. I don't know, really. Do you feel it's New Wave? The films that I've viewed from the French New Wave, I'm hardly a completist by any stretch of the imagination. I'd probably say I've seen about a dozen. And I think in my limited experience, it exhibits traits with films from the like of Jean-Luc Godard and Jacques Demy and uh, Agnes Varda mm. and the like. Certainly from a visual perspective, I 100% get what you say about the pop mm. art thing. And I'll even sort of make a case later on. It may have even been a precursor for a couple of the films that came out later that were under the psychedelic banner. But I've watched a couple of the films of uh, Jacques Demy, The Umbrellas mm. of Cheborg and Those Girls of Roquefort. Hello, Terry mm. Frost, if you're listening. Yeah, I'd certainly say in terms of how the story gets laid out, and certainly some of the photography in the film, we get a lot of close-up done in the way that I think French New Wave films, the ones that I've seen anyway, are sort of exhibited. In terms of the plot, I think that this film is more about coming out, well, here's an initial concept, and we're just going to have that theme laid out the rest of the film without it being a really great expansion on that plot. A lot about deconstruction of traditional film stories the way had they'd been made before. Mm. I read one thing that made an interesting case that French New Wave has a lot in common with Italian neorealism. And I wouldn't say I've seen a lot of that either, but it's probably more a style that I had more of a love for because I'll say right here and now that I'm not necessarily a great fan, apart from, say, Jean-Paul Melville, I'm not necessarily a great fan of the French New Wave. And I've probably sort of gone on record on the film 
Facebook groups that probably Jules and Jim is probably my most hated film of all time. Uh, <laughs> people are probably going to write in and say, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But before I sort of started going on and saying, well, it's like the new wave because of this and that, I sort of wanted to clear it up to see, well, does this technically qualify? Well, the French new wave is a real kind of blind spot with my film knowledge. It's something I really need to uh, investigate more. My gut feeling with this is that it isn't really. It's, I mean, it's very French and it's from a certain period. So I don't know if those two things in themselves sort of lend it a kind of new wave feeling. Yep. But as Rachel said, it, it made me think more of kind of pop art and sort of French comic books and things like that from the time. And it's almost a kind of precursor to the, the sort of pop video in a way as well, isn't it? It's Definitely. like a 90 minute continuous surge song. I'm not comfortable saying it is or it isn't wave as i don't really have the uh, the knowledge to back that up but my gut feeling is that perhaps as rachel said more pop art than new wave but having said that from what you've said i would agree that the things like have you seen donkey skin by jack Demi? no i haven't um, it's got catherine Deneuve in it and delphine say rigs in it although it's a fairy tale kind of story it's got the same kind of strange feel to it he uses a lot of colour in his films and actually Anna came out the same year as the girls from Rochefort yep. so you can see that there's going to be comparisons but I, I never personally felt that it did fit into that category just because parts of it are quite surreal I think and actually I think people would argue we were talking about Blow Up before that does have a similar feel to Anna those those kind of street happenings that they had in Blow Up which was kind of replicated in, in Anna at the beginning when mm -hmm. they had the ballet happening the paint guns and everything with Anna and Blow Up it's that thing of photograph being a key element of the film and somebody seeing something or have they seen something or in Anna's case him having the object in front of his eyes and not seeing it but, but in Blow Up seeing something and did it really happen but there are elements of it and the fact that there was music in Blow Up as well and it was the, the kind of trendy people, people out at a gig and so on and, and in this one it's a lot of fashion and yeah. uh, to do instead of being about a photographer so much it's it's about an advertising agency which involves photography of course i think you're right it does have a kind of feel of, of that blow up which again people might say was a, a new wave film this comes just after or you know as you said morris the kind of tail end of the new wave possibly the, the thing is all those directors would have been having a major influence on film and particularly French film at that time anyway mm -hmm. so it, it kind of makes sense it would have elements of that even if it wasn't necessarily mm. a part of that movement I guess my knowledge of French film of that period is once again you know, pretty limited I mean I sort of know you know about a few of the films from before that and I know, I know that Bernie you're probably like me a huge fan of Rafifi although that's technically oh, Jules, sure, yeah. Jules Dassin yeah. is he was American rather than French but that film certainly has 
more elements of、mm. American crime rather than what、yeah. led into the French New Wave. But I can sort of imagine that any of my favorite French films from many years later were heavily influenced by the French New Wave. I mean, I adore Betty Blue, and I've spoken at length about Round Midnight by Bertrand Tavernier, and I'm sure he、mm. would. Bowed down at the school, the French New Wave, and yet those films—they take maybe the mood of what went into the New Wave, the minimalist sort of feel, rather than having big spectacle of what they saw of a lot of Hollywood films, which is, I'm sure, what Truffaut and the like were rebelling against. But at least to me, those are films that are slow burn with a very definite story from beginning、mm-hmm. to end. And this one, just—I guess—my problem with some of the the new Wave things that I've seen are that it seems that it starts off with an idea, and like you've already gone and said, Bernie, it's maybe like an early example of pop music videos, and you think, well, yeah, where's this going? What's the next thing that's going to happen? This is the sort of thing I wanted to sort of bring up. That not knowing much about a particular film movement makes me feel very nervous about talking about、mm. a film from that movement because you sort of think, well, is this a good film in its own right? Because ultimately, a film has got to stand or fall on its own merits. But not knowing about the context and means the question is, is this a good film for? The pop art scene, or the French New Wave scene, or you know whatever you want to classify it as, and、mm-hmm. I feel like I don't have enough experience in either. I can just sort of say that I admire the vibrancy and I love the songs in this film. Oh,、whether、that's it, good. But whether it works for me from start to finish as a film is maybe another issue unto itself. The director is a Swiss filmmaker, not French, but he did a lot of TV stuff, did a lot of documentaries of which you probably would find interesting. Interesting. If we could find them with subs about pop culture-related things, there's one of his horror documentaries. His horror film documentaries is on YouTube. You can see that. But he did a lot of interesting stuff with that. So he was always involved in the pop culture side. The reason he got involved in Anna was because he knew the producer Michel Arno, who was a famous French singer, but also a TV producer, and he had made I think three TV specials with her, and they were always really well made. The French TV shows, and so. He'd done those, and she'd admired his work and thought he could make a film for TV, a musical comedy, and that's how he got involved. So you could say he's been working making music videos, although videos or clips didn't exist at that time as such. Although they had scopy tones in France, which were those、um, films that played on jukeboxes to promote records. But he was making music TV programs, and then went on to make this. It was his first feature film. So yeah, the argument is: is it? Just Just a long music video. Can it sustain a story, which is basically a guy falls in love with the picture of a woman and thinks he'd like to find her, and she's there all the time, and he just can't see her for looking, and that's it. That was the point I was going to make. What、well, I was going to say to you, Morris, do you think the fact that it's got the thinnest of narrative threads is that something which affected your enjoyment? Is it basically because the narrative is barely there because it's such a simple well, setup? I could say yes to that, but I'm probably sure that if I went back and thought about a lot of the films. That I really, really love. 
I probably find that they also have definitive narrative threads. I mean, I mentioned before Ran Midnight by Bertrand Tavonier, and really, what's the narrative thread? American jazz musician goes to do a season in Paris, makes friends with a French graphic designer, and the rest of the film is about their friendship, and not really much narrative thread there, and yet... It's one of my most favourite films ever. Is that more of a character piece, that one? Or? That's definitely a character piece. Yeah, yeah and it's yeah, a I mean, film I haven't it, seen. So. Well, there you go. I think we need to bring it back yeah. to see here. So this film, you could argue it's a character piece in a way, but... I never found either Serge or Anna even remotely, I won't say interesting, but maybe I had no sympathy or empathy for either of them. There's a scene early on where Anna sits down on a park bench next to a gentleman reading a newspaper, and she says, you're a voyeur, you're a pervert. Écoutez-moi la paix. Vous fous la paix. Je vais aller à Dabby move away and he says no I'm not a pervert and then she just grabs his newspaper and says let's look for the job wanted ads together shall we and that seems to me something very much influenced by the dialogue in a French new wave film and I just sort of found that sort of thing wasn't something I or maybe it's pop art as you say but it wasn't something I could latch onto. I thought, well, I'm not really feeling anything for this character. And she spends a lot of the time looking through the grey streets of Paris and wishing that she were frolicking around on a beach. And all he's doing is walking around being miserable because of some girl who he's blown up in a photograph. He was working on a photo shoot. He sends his minions out to look for her. And I just never sort of really take an interest in his play. I mean, if you go through traditional Hollywood musicals of the period or maybe the, the decade before, regardless of whether you like the film or not, but they establish, right, here's the character, this is why you should take an interest into them. And this is certainly not necessarily a musical in the old Hollywood sense because they're trying to do something different. No one just bursts out into song. They're more like they're driving to somewhere and they're singing a song to themselves. And that's something which, okay, I quite like, but... Yeah, I think if the film is not going to be so much narrative driven, then it has to rest on how you feel for the characters and neither Serge, played by Jean-Claude Brielli, or Anna, played by Anna Karina, I never feel anything for them. And maybe that's why I come back to this notion that do I need to understand that period of French cinema a lot more because, well, maybe it's the point. Maybe I'm not supposed to. I was going to ask you and ask Rachel as well. Do you think that their characters are kind of built by what they're singing? Does that add, does it give you an idea of who they are or are they just sort of archetypes going through the motions, singing about love and longing and uh, sort of existential misery and, and things like that? I think you could look at it that they're just symbols. It could just be about what life's like and how, not saying that all men do this, but, but that men might not notice what's around them and, <laughs> until it's gone, you know, in terms of always longing for a kind of dream woman instead of the real one that's there in front of them or something. So it, it might just be that, that it's just a, a symbol and that she's she's unhappy and wants to be somewhere else. It's something that a lot of people can identify with. But I think there was some kind of theory, I don't know how true it is, but that it was inspired by Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina in that Godard first saw photos of Anna Karina when 
when he was round at Agnes Bader's house. And that's when he saw her and thought that he wanted to meet her and have her in his in the film. You can see that that could be the kind of thing that might have influenced the film in the first place. I'm with you in that the characters are not developed too much. Maybe it's because I, I like Anna Karina so much that she kind of reminds me of, not that she looks anything like her or anything, but kind of reminds me of Clara Bow in that Clara Bow was very sort of free and uninhibited mm-hmm. and everything and and that's the way Anna is in that film it's the, it's the kind of thing the way the kind of way I'd like to be but I'm not in that she just she just really goes for it and she's not the best singer in the world or anything but she still does it anyway and belts her. out yeah. the songs and it's just her performance it's just really free and it's lovely to watch because I think she comes across as a really soft character soft around the edges I mean um, yeah, <laughs> and, um, yeah 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 um, comme un autre où je reste seul avec moi pourquoi Anna I think she's got wonderful teeth but I don't know what that says about me <laughs> I looked at her as I was watching it I thought several times she's, yeah she's got really lovely teeth did you? did you do I dentist treatment? I did yeah <laughs> my new career path yeah I thought that they were wine they were sort of dark they're almost a little yellowy as well wine and nicotine but did you think she got cute ears? she has got cute ears yes I find Anna Karina in herself to be very charismatic I just didn't think that the character maybe because of the development because there are several moments in the film where I'm thinking oh okay what are you going to do with this where is this going to go and probably this would be a good moment to actually talk about the songs in the film because I think one of the highlights for me in the film one moment I really genuinely loved was the song Roller Girl oh yeah mm-hmm. um, and there's this scene where Anna is fantasizing about her ideal man unaware that he's actually looking for her but then it comes out that she's putting herself into the head of a character in a comic strip that she's designing and called mm. Roller Girl and I wonder if this is any inspiration to Heather Graham many years down the track. What do you think of Roller Girl? She's great. Je suis la fille que l'on colle sur les Harley Davidson. Les BMW, les camions, c'est ça. Je suis la A film with songs that are mostly reflective, I think that this is probably the most exciting and up-tempo poppy song in the film. She pouts at the camera and she dances like a go-go dancer until the end of the song where she reflects on the likelihood of a life alone. That really touched me. I sort of thought, you know, she's vibrant, but yet she's got this self-doubt. Yeah, that was a moment that I thought, wow, I really, really loved that. It was an exciting, vibrant moment yet she doesn't have the confidence that she's putting on when she's thinking about this comic strip character that she's creating. It was a great song, truly great moment in the film. You could kind of say that the two main characters kind of want more than they have, and yet they're kind of doomed not to get it. There's definite sort of melancholy and uh, an existential kind of take on things. Anna wants to be somewhere else, and Serge wants the woman of his dreams, and yet you don't want to spoil the ending, but it doesn't necessarily work out that way. People kind of 
dreaming and wanting more but kind of trapped in the in the spaces that they're trapped in i read one interesting theory about this film there's very little online that's written in english so i found a couple of french commentaries which i then used google translate but there was one theory that said and i had to watch the film back a second time to sort of confirm this is that anna is clark kent and the one moment <laughs> that serge he can't see that she's right in front of him is because mm -hmm. when she's working for him in his advertising agency she's always wearing glasses and the moment early on in the film where he captures her in a photograph she's not wearing glasses was wearing glasses and they got knocked off didn't they That's so right. she was wearing glasses when she was on the train and then mm. the people who were posing on the platform somebody knocked her glasses off her face and she didn't realize she was in the photograph if that's all it took for him to not recognize her because she didn't have her glasses on it's a ridiculous notion that we've gone and accepted in comic book and film wisdom that no one will ever recognize clark kent as being mm. superman or vice versa so when you sort of think in this film oh really he can't see that but popular culture says that we've gone and accepted it for years in the Superman mm. realm so who knows if this is uh, Pierre Koralnik's intention or not but I think it's as good a theory as any that maybe he's taking the piss out of Superman <laughs> I mean um, she does look pretty different with glasses on though doesn't she particularly because she's got these big round very sort of noticeable glasses that really sort of change the shape of her face and her eyes I don't know I, I can kind of see it I mean you probably would have to be like legally blind or something yeah, not to uh, notice her yeah interesting thing was that she didn't recognise that it was her the, those posters were all around and she wasn't saying but of that's course the... yeah yeah that's true and the fact that she said she didn't like her so when she was looking at the picture and she was, I think she was probably painting a moustache on it or something, wasn't she? She said, that, oh, she's she's all right, but I can't remember what she said about her, but, but she said something that wasn't awful, but she said something that was a little bit of an insult, but it's actually about herself. You could look at it in all sorts of ways if you look at it like that. Why doesn't she even recognise herself? And she dresses up a lot in the film. You know, when she's dressed up for the Pistole Joe song, where she's dressed up in the blue cowboy outfit. Pistole. And then she's got the spaceman's outfit on and the wigs and so yeah, it's, maybe it is a kind of comic strip type thing which fits in with pop art and everything and it certainly fits in with Serge's musical output because he did the comic strip song which has Shabam Pal Bop Wiz and he was into comic books himself as well. Maybe that Superman connection was mm -hmm. a, a kind of intentional thing. That section of the film, the Pistole Joe, see this is where the narrative really lost me for a few minutes. Serge is walking the streets and he, he's still continuing I still haven't found the, my dream woman I still don't know where she is and then he pulls out a gun and you don't know whether he's killing someone in front of him whether he's committed suicide the next mm. few minutes it goes to this dream sequence and you think hang on what's going here and we get this very pop art very psychedelic thing which I thought hang on did they take this off head by the monkeys and then realise oh no hang on <laughs> head doesn't come out for another year after this no yeah. that's interesting you say that Morris sorry to go on a, on a tangent but as I was watching this I did think of head on more than one occasion mm. definitely uh, similarities there yeah if we'd seen that section of the film out of context 
then we just sort of think, oh yeah, it's all of a series of vignettes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a pop video of the time, and I can't even sort of help thinking that there were moments in that section of the film, I, and I can't for the life of me think why, but I was thinking to the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. I think there's that moment where he's lying on a table. We think he's dead, and we see this fire in the background, and all these people with makeup dancing around him, and there's just something about that table in the cook, the thief that. Look, I don't know, drawing a thin bow. <laughs> I'm getting all these images in my head. So in some ways, the film is a success for me with the way it looks. And maybe if I just sort of had gone and thrown everything to the wind and think, just don't look at it as a narrative. Don't look for characterization. Just take this film for how it presents itself, how it looks. And in that regard, actually, I sort of consider it a success because it's a beautiful looking film. And for a film that was made specifically for TV, it really mm. looks more to me like a film that was made for the big screen, at least for its time. Yes, it's dated, but... I could quite easily have seen this film showing in the cinema rather than TV at well, the time. the interesting thing about that is that it was made for TV, but it was made in colour, as we've seen it in colour. It was shown on TV in black and white because although it was made in colour for TV and it had a very big budget huge budget they didn't have color tv at the time so they were looking forward to we're going to have color tv soon and it was shown in black and white and then it subsequently went to the cinema but i don't think like on a, a major release or anything but it certainly was released so people could see it in big colorful because you can imagine a lot of the impact would have gone because the the color of the outfits and how everything popped mm. you would miss that in black and white although i'm sure it would still look special but you know not quite special as with all those eye-popping colors it was kind of like film tv collaboration type thing it's very strange it was a first in that it was the first color tv movie and also then went to the cinema so i just want to ask you quickly rachel serge gainsbourg has a strong connection with this film obviously as the main songwriter and mm. he's also credited as being one of the script writers of the film he's in the film not so much but mm. his physical presence in the film is definitely there do you know how he came to actually write the script for this was this his project to begin with or was he called on board what's his connection well he knew Michelle Arno very well because he had been a very shy man and he used to be a, a cabaret pianist he used to play clubs and he knew Michelle Arno because she was a famous singer and she discovered some of his songs that he'd written which he wouldn't perform because he was too shy she kind of told him he must do that and that he must start performing and, and doing his own thing and she also had him accompanying her so he was her pianist for a while so she knew him very well and she used to get him on TV on TV shows and things like that she was always a fan and it's funny because if you see her she looks really quite mumsy and everything but she was obviously a, quite a driving force both in music and TV actually and she knew Pierre Koralnik because they'd worked together and Pierre Koralnik had, had known Serge for a long time as well I think from back from the days when he was a pianist and it turned out that Serge was living with Pierre Koralnik at that time him and his wife had fallen out and he didn't know where to go and Pierre said come and stay with me for a week or two he did but he didn't leave for a year so they, they were just flatmates for a while and, and they got on very very well and very good friends and Pierre was doing this musical comedy and he's got a really fantastic singer-songwriter living with him and who's also happened to be um, very good friends with the, the producer so he got on board from there and I think because Serge had this reputation for being quite I wouldn't say unreliable but a last minute person if you were saying we're going to be doing this film and we need all this music you wouldn't 
want to leave him until the day before, which is what he would normally do. So he had to kind of lock him away for three weeks to say to him, mm-hmm. get on and write write the music and, and get on with writing the words and everything. So that's how he got on board with it. And they did work together again because when Serge got together with Jane, they did a film called Cannabis, which was released in America. He directed it and it's okay, but it's not as good as Anna. It's visually interesting, uh, not quite as visually interesting as Anna. Same cinematographer, I think. It's all right, but it doesn't deliver on the promise that Anna showed because I think Serge really rated Karelnik as a filmmaker and hoped that there'd be something as equally as exciting I think it was more made to measure because Karelnik had got this request to make a kind of gangster film really it wasn't quite about drugs but yeah it was to do with drug dealers but uh, yeah so it, it just didn't have the same vibe anyway because it was making a film on demand that's how they all tie in with each other so the blow up thing, you know yep. how in blow up there were lots of things that Antonioni had repainted and stuff like that. He had leaves painted on trees and he had a roads painted different colours and things like that. They had a bench painted orange in Anna. And, and I can't say I noticed that as such, but it probably was that scene with the old man. who She <laughs> said, oh, you know, you were a peeping Tom. It probably was that bench, but I need to rewatch it again and see if I can notice whether it, <laughs> there was actually an orange bench in there. The orange bench. Um, yeah. And um, interesting bit from the beginning is that I saw doing a little bit of research I saw a newspaper report where they said how was the ballet dancing the dance sequence at the beginning the jerk thing recorded you know how did they do that and Karelnik was wheeling his cameraman around in a wheelchair to do that mm. so there's this photograph of, of the director pushing the, the cameraman around in a wheelchair to make oh, wow. to, to film those sequences <laughs> I like stuff like that. <laughs> I think we all do. The opening sequence, the opening credits of the film, are particularly where I sort of thought, yeah, this looks more cinematic than made for TV. And I had to sort of like do my mental arithmetic because one suggestion that I'd read, there's an opening sequence, just to describe to those who haven't seen the film yet, where over the opening credits there's this photo shoot going on, although we don't know at first that it's a photo shoot, where we see a whole lot of people doing choreography and what sort of looks like paintball. And there's a suggestion that this was like a statement on war, but it's you know done as a very arty sort of statement, done in a very fashion photography sort of vein. And I was sort of thinking, I wonder whether that's some sort of statement on what had happened with the student and then left-wing rebellion from the universities mm. that came. But that but was, that I was think, about a year later, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was 68, so it was too early for that. Yeah, I don't know. It was, yeah, instead of using guns, using spray guns and plastic coats as well and i don't know but i thought it was great and the, the music over the top that that um, mm. instrumental track it's amazing It's unlike any yeah. of the rest of the music in the rest of the film. Very dark. Mm. And that really did remind me of Blow Up, that part, I have to say, because it just had that same kind of vibe that the streets of London had in Blow Up. So I can see how people think that. Bernie, were there any songs that particularly struck you that you really liked? I think the thing that really struck me about the music in general, I mean, A, it's fantastic all the way through, and I'd find it difficult to pick a, a favourite song. The film is, what, an hour and 27 minutes, something like that? Mm. 
and the music is constant i don't think it actually stops it goes from mm. song to kind of instrumental piece to just make background incidental kind of music to song again and it just feels like it doesn't stop but it all flows perfectly mm. is that right does it stop at all or mm. did i imagine that I think there are moments where there is no music, but they are few and far between. You're right. It is, it yeah. is uh, very music But to, to, you know, to write a, a score like that, where literally 98% of the scenes in the film are being scored, it's a real feat to, uh, A, just to pull it off and B, to pull it off so well, you know? Yeah, I, I was floored by the music. I really was. Yeah. Are you a Gainsbourg fan to begin with? Again, I, I'm almost ashamed to admit this in front of Rachel, but I don't <laughs> know a huge amount of his stuff. I, I know the thing that everybody knows and I think I've got a copy of what's the album with Bonnie and Clyde on is it Bonnie and Clyde comment il vécu comment il est mort ça vous a plu hein vous en demandez encore et eh bien écoutez l'histoire de Bonnie and Clyde I don't know what it's called because most of his albums were just called nothing. Serge Gainsbourg. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the big we, one seems to be uh, yeah. La Historie de Melody Nelson. That's uh, the one I have. Yeah, I do yeah, have yeah, that one. Yeah. Look, I knew that one and I knew the album that he did in collaboration with Jane Birkin, which is the one that has Je t'aime, the song that got, you know, however got many that. millions of males hot under the collar. I was speaking on the Love That Album podcast with my friend Pat about the Beck album Sea Change and he pointed yeah. out that there's a strong influence of Melody Nelson and Serge Gainsbourg on some of the songs on there and going yeah. back to that I thought oh 100% yeah I now see that because the orchestration is done in a very staccato sort of way and it weaves in and out of the band and that's what we're getting on uh, L'Histoire de Melody Nelson and my apologies for my shitty French pronunciation comme une poupée qui perdait l'équilibre. La jupe retroussée sur ses pantalons blancs. Please say it again, Morris. I love to hear you say that. No, I don't think I will. I've made an idiot of myself enough. Um, (laughs) Have you seen some Beck videos? He's taken influences from Serge Gainsbourg videos for for his own videos as well. So he's a big influence on him. C'était vraiment un employé modèle, Monsieur William. Toujours exact et toujours plein de zèle, Monsieur William. There was this song, it wasn't even a Serge Gainsbourg song, he did a cover version for a French TV show called, I think, Dim Dam Dom, and it was called Monsieur William. And Serge's version of the song is better than the original one, I've got to say. He has these female backing singers in it who've all got the same dresses on, and they're doing a, a really kind of silly, jerky dance to the music. And Beck had exactly the same in one of his videos. <laughs> and you know, he's done it on purpose. To, it's it's there. You know, if you're a Gainsbourg fan, you look at it and go, oh, Beck doing the Gainsbourg Michel Williams video. Yeah. Look, the elephant in the room, though, is that Gainsbourg is famous or infamous for being very, very sexually provocative in a lot of his songwriting. He seems to be quite restrained in this film. Do you think that Koralnik said, 
uh, uh, Serge, or he actually hadn't sort of reached that stage yet. Oh, well, actually, no, of course he had, because what was that song that he wrote, like, part of the Yeah Yeah period? France Gaul, he went and wrote that song about, she thought it was just it, about lollipops. Yeah, Les set. That's yeah. the one, yes. his moments he just trying to think of some of the songs in it whether there's anything particularly i don't think there is in this film there Uh, there are probably like a couple of moments there's one i don't remember if this is spoken or sung but there was maybe that moment where serge gainsbourg is with jean-claude brialy and serge is trying to give him advice saying don't dream about this wonder woman get out and sow your oats Qu'est-ce autre chose que la vie d'essence Qu'un mouvement alternatif Qui va de l'appétit au dégoût Et du dégoût à l'appétit De l'appétit au dégoût Et du dégoût à l'appétit Je m'en fous, ta gueule, laisse pas finir La lust, disgust so... That's the one, that's yeah, the one yeah. That's as possibly as close as it gets There's no double entendre in that The songs that work the best Like there's one which gets repeated about three times or so in the film And once again my pronunciation oh, is Sur le soleil Sur le soleil, exactement Under the yeah. sun, exactly That's this beautiful idyllic song where Anna is just dreaming about being on some beach somewhere and chasing dogs or having the dogs chase her and running into the waves. And those songs are where the glasses are off. Mm. And that's, once again, maybe that's the fantasy Anna. And the glasses on uh, the real Anna. That could be the link to Serge dreaming about the fantasy Anna, but the real Anna is right in front of him all this time mm. as she's working for his agency. But that's just such a gorgeous song. Really, really love that. You, know, you and, heard and get, Serge's this... version of it. I think yes, I have that's, that's on the album. It's on that Jane and Serge album, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yes, yes, I, I like that. But I'll be honest, I prefer Anna Karina's vocals because she's, to my mind, a stronger singer. Or maybe I just like the female voice better on that type of song. But yes, I have mm-hmm. heard the Serge version, yeah. Probably the other favourite song for me in this film was Here or Demain, Yesterday or Tomorrow, because that's where we get the cameo from Marianne Faithful. This is 
is at a moment in the film where we get the French female equivalent of Thompson and Thompson, Serge's aunts, sort of saying, right, well, we need to get him to stop dreaming about this woman who we've seen in the photograph. We're going to establish a dance, a ball with all the most beautiful women in Paris, and he can pick a woman that he can marry at this ball. Very fairy tale. And we get the gorgeous Marion Faithful walking through the ball, and she's singing this song in French to Serge, saying... You know what, if I met you yesterday or I met you tomorrow, I'd probably be in love with you. But today, you do nothing for me. And mm-hmm. he's just walking around her like a wolf circling around a sheep. But she's standing her ground saying, look, you're probably a nice guy, but no, you do nothing for me. It's a gorgeous song. You know, I love Marion Faithful. I know more of her work from her second life, from Broken English, and that's going to be the subject of November's Love That Album podcast, so we'll have more to say about it then. But I really, really love this moment in the film, or at least I love her singing in the film. And I know that she did a lot of other French material as well. Do you know much about her work of this period, Rachel? No, I know that when the album originally came out, and I don't know what the reason was, when the soundtrack album came out, her track wasn't on it. And I don't know if that was like a licensing thing. It seems strange that she would have been in the film and singing it if they weren't allowed to put it out on the album but it may well have been I hate to say this since you like her that maybe Serge didn't like her singing because he does really like ladies who can sing (laughs) so because he also worked with Nico in another film she sang a song in Striptease which Serge was in as a jazz pianist Um, he didn't like that either years later we know he liked Whitney Houston well enough doesn't work my mic doesn't work. He says you are great. Oh, thank you. Voilà, no, I said she, she's a genius. Voilà, he, he says you are genius. Oh, thank you. You're genial. Thank you very much. Oh, no. a friend of mine. Say it. Voilà, he, he says you are great. He dit que vous êtes très joli. C'est ça en gros ce que tu veux lui dire. Nah. Oui. You are not Reagan. I'm not Gorbachev. So don't try. Eh? I said I want to fuck her. Oui, euh, alors, je vais, vous, je vais vous traduire. Non, 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 non. Donc, il sait, you are great. Il dit que vous êtes très joli. Non, 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 non. Probably not her music. She would have been too accomplished for him, you see. But don't you sort of think that Anna Karina has a good voice in this film? I like it, but I don't think she's a natural singer. And that comes from me, who's also not a natural singer. But I think she can pull it off because she's so lovable and really throws everything into it. It's really that I've just smoked 20 cigarettes. I'm going to sing Roller Girl now <laughs> kind of voice. Yeah. When she sings Sous le Soleil exactement, I think she controls it a bit more. With the others, she's really going for it like Pistolet Joe and everything it's just a bit uh, I'm trying to find a nice word for it because I do like it but but I don't think she's a, a controlled vocalist let's say yep, sure. um, do you think her singing has more character than it does sort of technical proficiency mm, yeah that's exactly what I'm looking for there thank you <laughs> I think that going back to Marianne Faithful I know she's always liked France and she's made films in France as well hasn't she I've certainly seen her in at least one French film no two obviously because I've seen Anna yeah I don't, I don't know but I know that she did bring that song out herself anyway on an EP and that they were friends her and Serge were friends so there was no falling out or anything like that but it's it does seem strange that her track wasn't on before we started recording this you were mentioning to me that 
sometime in the 2000s, there was a release of this film on DVD, which mm. had the complete soundtrack. Mm. So they'd obviously worked out their licensing issues or Serge's. Whatever it was. Yeah. Well, Serge was dead by that yes. point. So <laughs> yes. It doesn't matter what he wants anymore. They brought out a remastered version of the film on DVD in 2009. And there was a special edition set, which was in a little slipcase. And it had a CD with it, which was the entire soundtrack. So everything. So including all of the instrumentals and uh, including Marianne Faithfull's track. So prior to that, the, the version of the album that I had was the restricted to the stuff that, that had Serge, Anna and Jean-Claude singing on them. So it didn't have the Eddie Mitchell track either. So actually, just as a bit of a side note at this point, I wanted to sort of give a bit of a shout out to our good friends at the Highway Hi-Fi podcast. If uh, you have any interest in Serge Gainsbourg or in particular the Yeah Yeah movement, which I knew nothing about until I heard their podcast, I'd recommend going back to that episode of maybe about mid-2019, they discuss Yeah Yeah movement and what that was all about, and Serge was a big part of that. So big shout out to them. And Serge was quite dismissive of the Yeah Yeah movement, so um, it's kind of funny that he gets lumped in with them, really. Have you been following that sort of music for a long time? Uh, Were you interested in that? Yeah, a long time. So I've been collecting French pop music from the 60s and 70s and so on for a long time now so I know a lot about that kind of period and have lots of the Salut Le Copain magazines that, that, were, that it was a really beautiful French pop music magazine of the day back in the 60s yeah I know a lot about that kind of thing and, and Serge really was quite dismissive of it until he'd had saw the possibilities in it i.e. money um, yeah. so <laughs> he was very cynical he won the Eurovision Song Contest with France Gall with Poupée de Cire Poupée de Son and a lot of people kind of forget that he was one of those musicians that actually managed to do something that really won as opposed to nowadays when somebody famous tries to do something on Eurovision they it always backfires and they look really silly but he won it in the 60s with France Gall and then he tried it again and unfortunately it didn't work out because I can't remember what happened with the he did this fabulous song called Boomerang it's not Boomerang the song that's in Anna it's a different one same title it obviously stuck with him but a different song altogether and he wrote that for a singer called Danny, who was kind of part of the Yeah Yeah movement in the 60s. And she was going to do that. But for some reason or other, it didn't work out. And I don't know if it was something to do with... I can't remember. Maybe France wasn't in the Eurovision Song Contest that year. And then he tried it again in the 80s and came second. So he obviously had his eye on the, you know, what can I get out of these things? And he, he did a lot of soundtracks and stuff as well. But he always had his eye on the money. So he was very dismissive of Yeah Yeah. And then he thought, well, actually, you know, if I can get in on it and write songs for other people, then I can make a pretty penny out of it. And he did. He was very cynical like that. It's interesting for such a craftsman and an artist to also be such a kind of capitalist as well, in a way. Well, he saw music as he wanted to be a, an artist, a painter. And that was his first thing that he really wanted to do. And he, he did train for that. And but he decided along the way, the way he was making money was by giving guitar lessons and by playing piano in, in nightclubs. When he saw that there was a way to make his fortune doing this, he did. But he always saw it as being second class. He, he didn't oh, see music as being a serious art. Yeah. Okay. Despite the fact that when he did Melody Nelson, he thought that it was a, a masterpiece and should have been appreciated more than it was. He saw pop as being a bit more throwaway and that it wasn't um, right. a serious business. He wanted to be respected as a 
true artist. And uh, for him, it, it, despite the fact that he obviously did love something about writing music and playing mm. music, he really regretted that he never became a famous artist. So, oh, why? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. about how Serge was uh, an artist and wanted to be an artist, a painter. I felt that the film was actually, you could almost compare it to a painting. It's quite expressionistic and it was about mood and feeling. Expressionistic or impressionistic? I'm not quite sure which one I mean. Does that make any sense to you? Despite the fact that we have summarised the plot and that really is it, I think you just have to immerse yourself in the experience of it in the way that they have that happening at the beginning with the jerky dancing. Yeah, it's a very visual thing and the music is very important the words despite the fact that Serge was very clever and everything and he is quoting Stendhal and stuff like that in it it's not kind of -of run-of-the-mill pop but I think it's just something to look at and enjoy and Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I I don't know if I'm making this up but you know Marlene Dietrich used to make those films with von Sternberg they were beautiful to look at because he was clearly in love with her and his camera loved her and everything but the plots of them were always really thin and I'm pretty sure there was one stupid I might be making this up but I totally am probably but about somebody inventing some invisible ink that's more invisible than other invisible inks or something (laughs) stupid like that you kind of have to look at it like that that it's a visual experience it's not going to change your life. It is a bit fluff, but it's a, a really beautiful bit fluff to look at. This sort of tends to make more sense for me now thinking about what I said before with the connection to the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover, because Peter Greenaway was trained as a painter. He was an artist before he became a filmmaker. And the look of that film really does look like someone who is making a painting rather than a film. Your whole notion there about Serge, even though he didn't direct this film, or didn't come up necessarily with a look, but I'd be surprised if he didn't have a few words to say about how things might look. He Mm. he was associating himself with something was very much in his art background or art aesthetic. But and my Greenaway reference makes sense. Have you guys, have you seen Mr. Freedom? I have not. No, but I'm aware of it. And again, the, the, the whole kind yeah. of dance sequence at the start has made me think of the, some of the stills I've seen, various mm. other things I know about the film. I did think of Mr. Freedom, yes, yeah. William Klein, a fabulous photographer, but also made films. And he made this film, Mr. Freedom, which I think you would love anyway. It's a statement of about Mr. Freedom was this character who was acting as if he was there to, is it, oh God, it's so, I can't put it into words. He fights for freedom, but he doesn't really. He's kind of racist and everything. So it all kind of, it's still, despite the fact that it was made in the 60s, it still feels relevant today in that there's this big larger than life character who's supposed to be a kind of superhero, but he's actually awful and destructive so, and everything. And this Mr. Freedom film, which has got Delphine Sabrick in, who I absolutely adore. And and Sturge is in it as well. And he was asked to do the music for it. And that is so pop art visually it's amazing and it's wonderful and it does remind me of Anna in some ways but this has got more to say politically
politically, but mm-hmm. Serge is in that, plays a character called Mr. Drugstore. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's just there play, playing the piano and everything, but they all have these outfits on, like baseball outfits and things, and it's all very Americanized, and it's all to do with commodities and acquisition and people's capitalism. status. Yeah. Capitalism, all of it, yeah. There's yeah. characters called things like Mr. Red Chinaman and stuff like that. I think you should see it. This is something else. And, and Serge did the soundtrack for that, and that's also fabulous as well. So, big Serge plug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Serge. I'm fine. My name is Serge, and how can I help you? Just wanted to add one more thing about Anna, the film. And I touched on this briefly earlier, but I really like the ending. I really like the fact that they were kind of brave enough to go in a direction that films like this generally don't. And I really like that. I thought that worked very well. I don't want to say too much because without, I think I already gave it away. But I think it was yeah, more realistic, I, I, wasn't it? It was, yes. Yeah. yeah. And in a way, kind of hope. I thought. Yeah, it, there was hope there, definitely. You know, as, as I said, it had that real kind of. It's a very melancholy ending, very existential. It's melancholy from one character's perspective, and maybe not so much from the other, because one character yeah, is doing but, what they want to do. But yeah. It's uh, but I liked it. I thought it was a very sort of brave way to end end the film. Well, for any of the listeners out there who are thinking, well, I can't find this film. Where is it? Convince me. I need to see this and work it out for myself. Is that DVD that you mentioned earlier on still available? Yeah. I hope that they're going to bring out a Blu-ray. I mean, I don't know, but I did interview the director of the film oh, wow. a couple of years ago the, as part of my Jim Bergen project, actually, and it's very, very nice. Nice man. At that time, they were doing a, a kind of. They'd, they'd been part of it was filmed in Deauville on the beaches, and they were getting a kind of, probably not a star, but a plaque there where that was filmed. And um, the director and Anna Karina were going there to cut the ribbon or whatever it is, and it was getting some attention at that time. The film, and I think they were doing screenings and Q and As and things like that. So they appeared together, and both really loved it, and Anna loved it, and said she enjoyed making the. Film film and being in the film and stuff i i really hope they will bring it out on blu-ray so that it's lovely and really nice quality and got proper subtitles all right that concludes our discussion of anna and Rachel, this has been absolutely magnificent having you on the show. Oh, uh, thank you. You've you brought a wealth it. of knowledge, and I think I speak on behalf of all of us that we hope that this isn't the last time that you come on the podcast. We'd love to have you back. Oh, thank you. You'll have to find another another obscure French gem for us or something. <laughs> I'm sure I could come up with something. <laughs> So until the release of the zine, are there any of your writings online that people can find or do you have any other books that are published that people you, can search out? Do you really want to know? Yes, um, I really want to know. Yes, so you're opening a whole can of worms here, uh, Morris. Yeah. Well, try, try to keep it down to 10 minutes. Okay. I do a Nick Cage fanzine because I really love Nick Cage and I review his films and I mean, regardless of whether they're any good or not, they always get good marks in my book because I love Nick Cage. It's called Nick Cage Actor for Hire and I do drawings in it and so I, I draw some pictures from the films and then 
write nonsense about the films and about how much I love Nick Cage. So there's that. Do you know Neil Breen, the filmmaker? He's like the worst, well, no, maybe he's not the worst filmmaker in the world. Bernie, you know him too, don't you? So you can chip in here. But anyway, this Neil Breen makes films. He writes them, he directs them, he produces them, he stars in them, and they're always... He's a true auteur, isn't he? Because a Neil Breen film is very obviously a Neil Breen film. They're unlike anything else you would have seen. Yeah, they're pretty yeah. special. They're so enjoyable for the wrong reasons. But I've done a fanzine called Neil Breen's Cosmic Blowtorch, and it's not just about Neil Breen, it's about pop culture, but there's a lot of Neil Breen in there. I've got an Etsy shop. I call myself Tiny Noggin, all one word. I'm on Twitter as well, um, Tiny Noggin. Yeah. Uh, some You're people on Twitter all me. the time. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I love you. it's it's films, French music, and comic books and cats. <laughs> That's what it is. The next time we have to find a, a music-related film about French cats. <laughs> You'll be completely in your element. Oh, no, Rach, you have to uh, come back on, uh, and in the new year, we will talk about the new film version of The Musical Cats, because it looks absolutely horrifying. I have seen the trailer. Please, Bernie, don't. Do we Do we have right of veto on oh, any film? I don't know. Maybe if we do this, then we'll have to I've do already, some... I've already, su- you know, I've already, You've already Bernie, said I've it. already suffered through the apple. So yeah. Did you see yeah. the apple? Yeah, I was going to say, is it as bad as the apple? Oh. oh I, I don't know. You, you should just, just watch the trailer for it, Rach. It, it looks bizarre what they've done. They've kind of CGI'd people's faces into cat faces. and. I'll put a link to the uh, Tiny Noggin Etsy site oh, along thank with... You. Uh, along with posting this podcast. So I should do a brief discussion about what is happening next month, November 2019, will be episode 70, and I believe we're getting our beloved Tim Merrill back on the show. And what is happening is we're going to be interviewing a filmmaker out of Sydney, a fellow called Sean Katz. And he's gone and released a new documentary this year. I think it's actually going to, from the time we're recording this, it's getting its London screening in maybe about three weeks. So early November 2019. The name of the film is Underground Inc. The Rise and Fall of Alternative Rock. So Ooh. it's it's a documentary about the oh I don't know if you're going to call it specifically the grunge scene but the music of the 90s the finance as well as the art and talks about some of the lesser known bands as well as obviously some of the big players so really looking forward to watching that and talking with Sean about this film he's been posting a lot about it on Facebook over the last few months and I was very very keen to get him onto the show and he was very very keen to come and speak with us anyway that'll be our November episode of See Here uh, November 2019 if you want to listen to uh, any of our back episodes, you can hear us at seehere.podbean.com. You can get us through the usual means of iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever they call it nowadays, as well as Stitcher and Spotify. We are on Instagram, seeherepodcast, all one word. If you just search for that, you can find us and follow us for the uh, two to three pictures I may post every month. Hopefully you put up some beautiful shots of Anna Karina and some lascivious so gonna, shots of Serge Gainsbourg. I'm going to put up some lascivious shots of uh, Anna Karina's teeth, I think, this month. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, keep your eyes peeled, everyone. I wonder if there's a good dentistry podcast out there. I'd be interested. Maybe we can uh, do some yeah, cross-pollination with them. Guarantee there's going to be a dentistry podcast out there. Did I mention the Facebook group? Yeah. If you want to join in the discussions, facebook.com forward slash groups 
forward slash C here podcast. We've got an email address, haven't we? Uh, is it we do. We do. Podcast at gmail.com. I had not mentioned that. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. We want you to add to the thousands of emails that we get. I read every single email that comes to that address, and that is true. Um, <laughs> the thing about thousands of emails may be a bit of a porky pie, but it is true that I read every single email that comes to that address. So one final thing I will mention, and this will be out of date if you happen to listen to this podcast a month from now or two months or whatever. But I will put in a quick word that on November 9th here in Melbourne, I will be running a screening of the library music film, which was our subject back in February. We spoke with the director, Paul Elliott. So go back and listen to that podcast. We're all very, very proud of it. It's a terrific film. I wanted to make sure that people locally got to see it. The film's been showing all around the world, and I figured it needed a Melbourne screening. I tried getting some local cinemas interested in it and didn't really hear much from them. So I thought, bugger this, I'm going to get a screening showing myself so i've booked a wonderful venue called long playing out in north fitzroy it's a wonderful combination bar and cinema and i've arranged with paul elliott to do a q a we're going to be getting him on by skype so we're going to run a screening of the film and having paul elliott come on for half an hour to do a q a at the end of the film so very very exciting if you're listening to this please join us and further details just join us on the see here facebook page and uh, we'd love to see you there on the night long playing in North Fitzroy so I think that pretty much covers it so I'm looking forward to uh, having Tim back next month looking forward to having you on the podcast again in the near future Rachel thank you this has been absolutely wonderful Bernie will speak in the ether yes we shall so until next month please be nice to each other watch some great films watch some crap films watch some music related films because that's what we represent and until next month all the best cheers bye bye It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 